Welcome to the IFE podcast series. Today's podcast is our first Grand Challenge lecture for 2018 and features Professor Tanya Weil from Germany's Max Planck Institute for Polymer Research. Professor Weil is a respected chemist and the director of the Institute's Synthesis of Macromolecules Department. Her lecture, recorded on Friday the 23rd of February, is entitled Next Generation Nanomaterials for Therapy and Diagnostics. We hope you enjoy this IFE Grand Challenge Lecture. So it's a great pleasure for me to be here today and an honor, true honor, to uh, be able to speak and give a Grand Challenge Lecture today. I will basically refer today to the grand challenges we are facing in designing with macromolecules and also materials to address challenges in nanomedicine, so in the, in the medicinal area. I usually like to start my presentations also with some view in, into these um, areas and compartments basically we, that we would like to address with our molecules. So what you see here on the backhand side is, is a, a part of the movie from uh, the inner life of the cell that you can also download from the internet. It's a, it's a beautiful movie that gives you a flavor how molecules assemble and disassemble in a, uh, inside the cells. And if you are interested to design macromolecules or polymers for medicinal applications, then basically understanding how molecules interact with cellular structures, how they can, how binding events occur, and also basically what is important of this particular size range or molecules, the molecules we are designing. So what is so important about that? So this is something which is, I think, very nice um, visualized and also depicted in this, uh, in this movie here. And all of the molecules I will show you later on and all the materials we are working with, they are all within this side ra uh, size range of proteins and also of DNA that you, that you basically find inside the cell. So it's an important size range and I think this is something one really needs to consider. And uh, it's very important to understand also how biomolecules within this size range, how they interact and in order to be able to basically modulate the action. Again, also as an introduction, please let me show you the size range we are, we are in particularly interested in. And I've depicted here a size range from the, actually from the atomic scale up to the macroscopic scale. And I think for, for us as humans, it's always a bit challenging to understand and to digest the size range in this very small area, so from the nano to the micro regime, because um, basically we cannot see it even, it's very difficult to, to see it under, under the microscope, so there are, there are techniques out, but so it's, it's for us very difficult to make this journey from a, from a bacteria cell up to a virus molecular atom. And therefore, I would also like to show you this analogy. So if you take a hair and you multiply your hair by 100,000, then you reach basically our daily life, so the size of a house. And the same is true, so if you basically divide the hair by 100,000 fold, then you are reaching this area where... Um, Basically, you will find the molecules and materials I will, I will show you today. So basically, this dimension from this hair to the house is basically the same step as from the hair to, to our molecules. And you might imagine already that there is a lot of room, a lot of space, a lot of empty room in this particular size regime. And this idea has been brought up already quite some time back when very eminent physicist Richard Feynman, when he made this very important statement that there's plenty of room at the bottom. 
So basically, there's a lot of things going on at this, uh, at this scale, at this uh, bottom, so this nanoscopic scale. Since we would refer today to molecules that should be used for medicinal applications, I also added a second quote, which is maybe not that well known to, to many of you. So it was from a graduate student of Heinemann, and he envisioned that one day repair machines could be reduced in size to the point that it would, in theory, be possible to swallow the doctor. So this idea that you might miniaturize maybe robots or other, nano, other machines to the nano regime and that you might swallow them and then basically they would be able in your body to find the um, area where disease basically occurs, maybe a, a tumor would be situated to report where it is and also to maybe, maybe give some feedback, to sense, and also to treat there. That, will, that is something which actually drives us around, which is extremely appealing and fascinating to think of. And that is also basically one of our great visions in which direction we would also like to head. And it has also stimulated not only us, but also many others, maybe even people from Hollywood. So I, I depicted um, part of the movie Inner Space, which I knew you know, um, from the time when I was small. So basically here, uh, a nano shuttle, basically. So a, a shuttle was miniaturized to the nano regime. And then basically a, a scientist swallowed this nano shuttle. And then basically it was there to, to find the destination of a, of, a, of a disease inside the body and maybe to do some repair mechanism. So the question is how to, how to design such materials, such nanorobots. I think we are very far off producing something like that. But I think there are some very stimulating synthetic concepts, and I would like to show you ours today. Also, I would like to highlight that the size regime, so this nano size regime, is extremely suitable for investigations like that, so to bring nano-sized materials into our body. Here, I would like to highlight that our body basically reacts in a very special way to nanoscopic uh, structures, so which could be particles, which could be polymers. So for example, if you, if you investigate how molecules, depending on their size, how they distribute in our body, yeah, then there's a, basically you, you will find that certain sizes are transported or eliminated just because of their size and not only be, not because of their chemical nature. So you will find basically that uptake into tumor tissue is enhanced if molecules have a size range of 30 to 200 nanometers. And I will also explain that on my next slide. So that means you can have something which is called a passive targeting just because of the size into tumor tissue. Then you have the liver and a significant clearance. Also, um, within a size range of 20 to 150 nanometers, you have a clearance from the spleen of even larger particles and kidney for sizes in the very small regime, below 8 nanometers. Certainly, you can also influence that by chemical barcodes, by chemical modifications that you can include. But just uh, to highlight that size matters in our body. I would like to here also um, refer to some, some earlier work where people have tried to find out what makes macromolecules, what makes nanoscopic molecules basically traffic into tumor tissue, maybe stay there in comparison to healthy tissue. So in here, you see 
healthy presentation of healthy tissue and here is an invasive tumor and you see um, basically the connection to blood vessels and in the healthy tissue you have very good barrier integrity and you have uh, and basically larger nano-sized molecules they are not normally not really trafficking in whereas for tumor tissue these barriers become leaky and then in particular these nanoscopic molecules in the range up to 200 nanometers they can traffic in and then they remain there due to an ineffective lymphatic drainage. So basically that is a, an opportunity just because of the size to bring particles, to bring macromolecules into tumor tissue and then basically to, to use them to visualize tumors or maybe also to, to treat them. For me as a chemist I would also like to highlight that size also matters with respect to the space that you would have in order to impart further chemical functions. So here's aspirin. Aspirin is a very well-known drug that you take if you have a headache. Yeah? And so um, it, re um, it interacts with certain receptors on the cell surface. If you would like to have a reporting whether aspirin is binding, if you would like to have some kind of feedback mechanism where it is trafficking in your body, then there is not so much space what you could do in order to, to hook further functionalities there. So it's a, it's a molecular drug. However, if you are taking the step from molecular drug to a nano material, to nano-sized drug, so to say, then you have much more space to introduce other components. So next to a drug molecule that you might use for therapy, and this is just depicted here in a very generalized fashion. You have also space in order to introduce groups that would give you some color response, that would give you some feedback that you could basically visualize where the molecules are trafficking. And also, you might include small barcodes, so biological molecules that would direct your molecule to a certain area in your body. So, and that means basically nano-sized drugs offer the opportunity of having larger surface areas and more space for us to do chemistry and to include and incorporate additional functionalities. Then basically to be able at least to direct our, our molecules in a, in a more controlled fashion and to also receive some feedback mechanisms. I would like to highlight very briefly that the word nano is also considered often as a threat. So, people might be afraid just of something which is uh, within the size regime that it, yeah, nanorobots basically could, could take over. And uh, I, I would like to highlight that understanding toxicity and also environmental impact of nanomaterials is important. And that is something one should definitely consider and look into. However, nano just means it's a, it's a size regime. So it does not tell you something about the nature of the individual nanoscopic material. And therefore, it's something you need to basically consider for every molecule, be it a small one or larger one and it's not only based on size but also based on the nature of the material because our in our machines in our body they are also nano sized such as proteins and DNA so one should not generally be afraid of nano but but one should definitely consider also aspects health aspects and also environmental aspects so with this I would like to move forward from the very general interact, uh, introduction of nano medicine nanomaterials to the materials basically that we are developing and our own challenges. And we are, in my group, very interested in an emerging material uh, which is based on, on diamond, and diamond everybody knows. Yeah? We would like to develop diamonds in such a way that the diamond 
particles are able to deliver drug molecules, that they are able to basically report from different places in the body and give us feedback that they are able to identify and eliminate, for example, tumor cells or tumor tissue. And we believe that, that diamonds basically offer this opportunity of um, drug delivery, of sensing, and of imaging within one particle system. And therefore, uh, I would like to show you basically how we convert diamonds into transport systems. So I will first introduce diamonds and why they are of, of interest in our group, how we synthesize and functionalize them. So we are synthetic chemists, as Roger introduced at the beginning. So we are the ones who hopefully can uh, yeah, prepare, produce, and optimize them. And then how we apply them in medicine. And so this is a very young and emerging field. I would like to give you a flavor where the field is currently standing, in which direction it is developing. So there are big hopes. At the beginning, I, when I read the first papers about diamonds, mainly from physicists, um, as I said, it's a relatively young field. I was at the beginning not very convinced. And the reason was that diamond as a material is, for me as a chemist, not that fascinating. Yeah, I mean, diamond is transparent, so usually it does not have color. It's very hard super difficult to do chemistry with, so very inert. That means in comparison to basically other all carbon allotropes that I've put here, diamond was maybe the least interesting. I mean, there's a big hype on graphene, fullerenes have been very interesting um, in the past decades, but, but I would say diamond um, with its all carbon, very inert um, SP3 scaffold has been not um, under much consideration. But this has changed, and it has changed because of uh, something, and here I like to quote Sir Frank, who said, crystals are like people, crystals like diamonds, yeah, so they are the defects that make them interesting, and the same is true for diamonds. So diamond on its own as a transparent material is beautiful, but not that appealing. But then if you consider diamonds with defects, then the story becomes interesting. Here, we, we know many, many defects, atomic defects in the, in the diamond lattice um, that basically give them color. And if you investigate defects, and um, I will show you on the next slide a little bit more about it. So there are nitrogen defects, silicon defects. You can tune the color of the nano-diamond just by the defect. So depending on what kind of um, atomic defects you have in your lattice, you might see a different optical property. And that is quite attractive, because um, if you compare that with other particles, yeah, then it's often the size that, that gives the color, but not the, the defect center, which is very defined in, in, your, in your particles. So this is something which is very special here. And then, basically, there's one defect. And this is the one I will basically use throughout my talk. It's maybe still the best uh, um, understood, even though it's also not fully understood. It's a nitrogen vacancy center. So nitrogen vacancy center, so what you see here, is part from this diamond crystal. So in blue, dark blue, all carbon uh, atoms around. And then, basically, you have a substitution in nitrogen. So here, normally, in the um, a normal diamond would, would be a carbon, but we, will ha we have a nitrogen impurity here. And then, very close by, is a vacancy. And this combination is called an NV center. It's a color center. It has certain properties. So it has an absorption then in the, I would be able to actually excite it here with my green laser pointer when I would shoot on it. Yeah, and then basically you have an emission spectrum just because of this color center. 
Again, for me as a chemist, looking at such a color center, it's, it makes me very uncomfortable. Nobody likes carbon with three bonds and something empty here in the middle. Yeah, this is something basically as an organic chemist I, I would not feel comfortable with. And then basically uh, by measure, EPR measurements, people found out that it's not a five electron system, but it's a six electron system. So there should be also an electron coming somewhere from the lattice to, to form this NV center. And so far there are theoretical calculations so, uh, that say, okay, it should be an NV minus center, so to also consider the charged state, but nobody really knows how the center looks like. But we use it, it's extremely useful. We have no idea how it looks like, but it's very useful. I will show you why it is useful. So on the one hand you have emission, you have an absorption and emission, so it's colored. It can be very small, as I said, so and this is very dense, but I would just like to highlight here, so this is basically, these are the electronic structures of this NV center, but I don't want to lose you at this stage, yeah? Just would like to make two points, two points, out of this very complicated thing that I normally tend to explain. So that you have special orbitals that are affected by, by temperature and by magnetic fields. And you should only remember that, that the nano NV center is able to give you information about the temperature in the surrounding and about magnetic fields in the surrounding by optical readout. So that means you can take the spectra and then you receive an information about the temperature in the surrounding or about magnetic fields. And so um, the entire study is a little bit more complicated, but we put it down to, pinpoint it down to uh, these two parameters here. And being able to sense magnetic fields by optical readout is extremely appealing. So basically this NV center, on the one hand, it's a, it's a chromophore, it's colored, but on the other hand, it can give you information, it's a sensor, it can give you information about tiniest magnetic fields and about the temperature. It's like a small nano thermometer that you can bring somewhere. And that is something which is really special. And you can read out these features from your surrounding optically. And that is something which is, which is very important here. So you can just by, by investigating emission changes and so on, you can get an information about the temperature and magnetic fields in the surrounding. And that makes it a very interesting uh, magnetic field sensor actually. And our great vision, we are talking here about challenges. So I'm basically in a team with two physicists. Even though I won't talk too much about physics later on, I would like to highlight their work. So we have a synergy grant, so that means we all three have received from the European Research Council quite a lot of funding for several years in order to produce these diamond sensors. And since they can detect magnetic fields, our, our big uh, hope and vision would be that we would be able to resolve electron spins and also atomic spins in the near surroundings so that we can get an information about structures, about proteins, about dynamics, and all that works under yeah, physiological conditions, so in a, in a cellular context. So we would like to use these nano diamonds as imaging probes, but also as, as sensors, and we would like to also in the future uh, receive a structural information of, for example, proteins in a cellular context at the single molecule level, which is not possible nowadays. 
And here you see such a nanodiamond sensor uh, with a diameter of about uh, four nanometers. Let's move forward. I've hopefully given you an idea that it might be interesting to work with such diamonds. Yeah, and, uh, but show you now how we um, plan to synthesize them. So, so far I have not talked at all about how we can introduce these defects and how are we able to basically produce these small uh, sizes. And this is actually quite a rough process. So let me first very quickly also show you the synthesis of such diamond nanosensors. So the nanodiamond process is a, is a very uh, crude one. So I would say diamond synthesis is one of the last great challenges in chemistry actually, because there's no wet chemistry approach to synthesize diamonds like graphene, so there are synthetic approaches to synthesize nanographenes in a defined fashion. So a diamond, that does not work so far. Basically, um, the, the way how it is done at the moment is very much inspired to how nature does it, and this is depicted here. So if you have a very short idea so on um, so how, how nature basically produces diamonds, so you have the earth crust, you have basically the inner liquid core, and then you have basically this area uh, in between where you have very high pressure and temperature, and under these conditions, basic carbon atoms merge and they produce the crystal structure of diamond. And then basically if there are eruptions and uh, then also diamonds come up to, um, to the earth. But what you would need is extreme pressure and temperature. And that is also something that we are using in our labs when we are preparing nanodiamonds. So um, the usual way at the moment is a very crude one. So um, high pressure, high temperature. So these are anvil cells. So you have basically a cell where you can um, put high pressure in the range of seven to 10 gigapascal catalysts and uh, you have a heater there. And then basically um, you grow your micro diamonds in such chambers. And the micro diamond is depicted here. You don't want a micro diamond, you want a nano diamond. So you need to get some small. What you do then is basically you mill your micro diamond into smaller nano diamond pieces. It's a very inefficient process, but it, it works. And it uh, also gives you not something which is extremely uh, very distinct, but um, it, it gives you a mixture out of diamonds after purification, so in the range of maybe 10 to 20 nanometers with some substitutional nitrogen in. Another approach is that you take explosion chambers. So you, you make an explosion, and then you can also form diamonds, even smaller ones. So this also works, but it's also not really a controlled process. And then basically you have the chemical vapor deposition where you can uh, grow diamond from surfaces, also basically in a not very defined fashion. So the impurities, they, just, they are introduced into the lattice just by maybe a surrounding gas uh, during growth or surface impurities that are grown into the diamond lattice. It's very ill-defined. And um, then when you have your impurity in here, you still need your vacancy. So this empty space that I've mentioned. So how is that generated? So there are different ways, and the most common one is that you uh, shoot the, uh, the diamond, either the micro or the nano diamond, with electrons. And then basically you kick out a carbon from the lattice and somewhere, then you need an annealing step, so high temperature, two hours heating, so that this vacancy somehow moves within the crystal. Again, something an organic chemist does not like too much, yeah, but some, so it happens like this. So the vacancy moves and it gets trapped by this uh, uh, nitrogen impurity if it's a minimum two nanometers below the surface. 
And then you can create this nitrogen vacancy center. And you can see that even under the microscope, if you watch such a uh, diamond crystal with a nitrogen uh, inside, and then with a vacancy that is formed somewhere, and then you anneal, and then you can create, for example, your diamond here, in this case, a microdiamond with a nitrogen vacancy center. So it's not defined, and that's one of the biggest problems nowadays in working with our nanodiamonds. What we are doing currently, and that's a dense slide, but it's just one slide about our synthetic approach, even though I have many people basically working on that. So we synthesize precursors that resemble a little bit the lattice of the nanodiamond with, uh, with the impurity patterns already in the, uh, encoded in the molecule. And so here we try to basically introduce patterns uh, in these precursor molecules that remain stable. And we try to grow the diamonds under mild conditions, so just maybe 300 to 400 degree, and uh, 3 to 4 gigapascals. So these are, for diamond synthesis, mild conditions. And it works. Yeah, we can form diamonds via this approach. This is something which we are uh, basically just preparing, and that would give us in the future the opportunity to, to basically tailor defects in nano-diamonds, and that is something which is ur urgently needed in the field. But um, I would like to move forward and would not like to bother you too much with the diamond synthesis, but more move to, towards the medicinal applications that I've promised you. So if you've prepared a nano-diamond, then basically, again, the surface is very ill-defined. You have many functionalities at the outer surface, um, such as carboxylic acids, hydroxy groups, some oxidizing um, um, products, and also different particle sizes. And what is in common, doesn't matter which uh, method of preparation you, you choose, is that they aggregate quite heavily. So you need to do additional chemistry in order to de-aggregate them and, and use them for biomedical applications. What we do here is, so we, we, we would like to introduce surface functionalities that allow us to bring nanodiamonds into cells and to um, basically be able to have them also stable in a cellular context under in vitro and even in vivo conditions. And for that, we really need a robust surface functionalization strategy. And again, we got inspired by, by nature. And I would like to show you here basically with one application, a medicinal application already, how we functionalize our nanodiamonds, that they are stable, that they can be um, bridged into the bio world, and how uh, this could be also used for sensing purposes. We got inspired again by our body. A few work with nanomaterials, and uh, nanomaterials get exposed to, um, to blood then basically a lot of things will happen. Normally, proteins in your bloodstream, they will settle down the surface um, of any nanomaterial and then basically form some kind of corona around a nanomaterial. And we thought that this is actually a really good method, method in order to functionalize and encapsulate nanomaterial. So we got inspired by this protein corona that nature forms around a nanoparticle and said that this is a beautiful platform to functionalize nanodiamonds for um, our biomedical purposes and biomedical needs. So now we'll give you basically our first example where we have been successful. So we thought we take a protein that we have in our blood, which is ferritin, so ferritin is a, is a transport protein in your blood. It stores iron, and this is what it's 
maybe not as beautiful as it should look like, but these are small little iron cations that are stored in this protein cage in our blood. And then basically, there's also a protein called apoferritin, which is the empty um, variant of, of ferritin. Basically, we have that available in our blood, and we were wondering so whether we can absorb that on our uh, quantum sensor. And next to it, it's also of medical relevance, because our iron level, if somebody would like to investigate whether you have maybe um, some kind of anemia, or if your iron level is not, not okay, then one of the measurements is to investigate basically ferritin, how much ferritin is present. So ferritin stores iron in our body, and its malfunction is connected with many diseases such as anemia, depression, but even Alzheimer's disease, where it has been found that there is much less iron actually in these um, uh, protein container, protein capsules. Basically, what we did was we prepared a nanodiamond with carboxylic acid surface groups, and we absorbed the positively charged ferritins, so they have a net positive charge. This is shown here, and here we have a net negative charge under physiological conditions. And we prepared, basically, a conjugate between the nanodiamond and the ferritin. And this is what you can see here. This is a, a transmission electron microscopy picture from Ute Kaiser in Ulm, um, where you see the nanodiamond. And then, basically, here, the ferritin proteins filled with ion 3 plus adsorbed at the surface. So by looking at it, we, we were sure, okay, these complexes have been formed. But then what is um, now, uh, what is the impact? What is, can, we, can we visualize, can we detect whether there is maybe this ion 3 plus in or not? And again, here it's uh, this um, idea of having a destruction-free analysis. So when you have a coffee break, yeah, you always maybe wonder what is in your coffee cans. Is it really coffee or is tea in or even worse, water or if it's fully empty? This is something which we wanted to do with our ferritin system. So a destruction-free analysis, whether there's iron inside or not. And actually, this worked quite well. This was the first single molecule, biomolecule detection ever with a quantum sensor. And again, it's a dense slide, but the, they are guilty here, the two physicists, yeah, because they make things always a bit more complicated. So Fyodor, with his team, they were able to measure um, coherence times for these um, NV centers in the, in the nanodiamond. And they could find out that if you look at the free nanodiamond, or the nanodiamond with the apoferritin, empty ferritin, then you have a certain coherence time. And if you add ferritin, then there's a big shift. Basically, and this shift correlates very well to what Martin, a theoretical physicist, has basically predicted, which is always good if the practical physicist also measures what the theoretician basically predicts. So we were very confident and glad, we because we prepared it, and they because they were able to detect for the first time with an NV center whether this protein is basically filled with iron or not. Now, again, you could say, oh, yeah, there are so many essays out, yeah, if I go to the doctor, the doctor also tells you whether there's iron in or not. But, but they have a different methodology to do so. So normally, they just detect whether there's enough, whether there are enough of these proteins inside. So they do normally an immunoassay and just basically investigate whether they have, um, um, they have a sufficient number of these protein changes, but they don't look what's inside. And with our NV center, we are 
what, looking basically into the protein capsule, and we would like to basically then quantify how much iron is in or not in. And so this is basically an uh, NV-diamond-based assay system for direct iron detection. What we would also, what we are currently also pursuing together with a company in order to maybe get even different results, uh, hopefully, from the results that you would have with a normal assay system. But then, if we are talking about quantum sensing, if we are talking about um, in vivo applications and so on, there's still quite a step from basically this ferritin detection to sensing under in vivo conditions. But I would like to show you very quickly, so that um, basically these nano-diamond sensors, they have been also injected already into animals like the C. elegans, very nice um, uh, animal model, so it's warm. And what you can see here is um, the nano-diamond with its red color. And then basically you can see also different lifetimes. Um, you can do lifetime imaging in C. elegans. And what was really interesting was that you can see the characteristic signal of the NV center under in vivo conditions. So that means in principle, maybe in the future, we would be able to detect the ferritin in an, uh, the, the level of, um, or the loading of iron in an in vivo system. That would lead you one step forward towards this idea of having a nano robot or having something that would give you information from the interior of your body. So there's still quite a step, yeah? At the moment, we are here just looking at basically a warm, which shows fluorescence, which shows different lifetimes, but it also gives a very characteristic signal that I haven't introduced because it's very complex. But this characteristic signal responds to the temperature, it responds to magnetic fields, and it gives, in, in principle, this is a proof of concept, that it gives the opportunity to read out information under in vivo conditions, which makes it very attractive. In parallel, we were already very active in using these nano-diamonds um, as, as transporters and also investigating them without the quantum sensing opportunity under in vivo conditions. And this is something what I would like to highlight for the remaining uh, couple of minutes. So how we could make use of these nano-diamond sensors uh, in, an, in a biological uh, in vivo context. So, the sensing component is something I will not touch again, but the nano diamond, because of its color and because of another of nice feature that I haven't basically discussed with you so far, it offers many more opportunities. So, and as a scaffold, diamond is attractive because it's inert. As I said, it's all carbon. Uh, it has no metal ions, it has no semiconductor nano, it's not consisting of a semiconductor nanoparticle which might be toxic. It's traceable and it does not bleach. So a nano diamond on its own under in vivo conditions could have already be attractive for um, drug delivery. And what you need is you need again a surface coating. And here again we got inspired by what we did before, that we say we use proteins from our body as a surface coating and then basically introduce chemical functionalities. And here we use a protein that everyone has in the blood. Now it's uh, called serum albumin, human serum albumin, and this blood protein is very sticky. And it's actually ideally suited to coat nanodiamonds and to functionalize them. And I would like to show you how, how we basically do that. So we use a methodology to basically take this human protein and destroy it, and then um, modify it chemically so that you can introduce other functions, such as drug molecules and so on. 
this works quite well. So you take the protein from your blood. It's commercial. Yeah? Nobody needs to donate blood samples. So you can just buy it with Aldrich or whatever. And then basically we do some chemistry. And this is the only real chemistry slide I've included here. And I apologize, but we are chemists. And sometimes you also need to show what we, what we do. So we introduce or we convert carboxylic acid into amino groups to make the protein a little bit more sticky and also to introduce more functions. And then we put small polymer, so, uh, polymer hairs to them. And these hairs, it's called polyethylene oxide, they are very good to, to prevent that those proteins aggregate or that the nanodiamond will later on aggregate in your body. And then the important step is to denature the protein and, um, and introduce even more, and then you have even more functionalities available because it's not globular anymore, but it's more linearized. And then you can introduce, for example, these um, anti-cancer drug molecules that can be cleaved under certain conditions. So this is an anti-cancer drug that is um, already on the market, but not connected, so not on the market connected to our biopolymer. So you have a biopolymer from a natural protein that um, has the anti-cancer drugs. And what we then do is, so we characterize it, and then basically, because of the positive charges, we can wrap this polymer around a nanodiamond, and then we are sure that we have all functionalities available at the surface of the nanodiamond. So what you can see here is that the nanodiamonds, they do not aggregate anymore, even though there are many lipophilic drug molecules attached, um, in contrast to the bare diamond that aggregates heavily, and also, it's very nicely uptaken into cancer cells. So if you basically um, introduce um, these drug diamond conjugates to cancer cells, you can see here that they are um, nicely uptaken into cells, and you can track single particles. And again, this was Fyodor and his team who basically then investigated in the cell. They could investigate where is our diamond, and they could show that here in vesicles, they are the nanodiamonds with the drugs. And then in the cytoplasma or in the cell nucleus, they are just the drug molecules that have been released from the diamond. And they could map a cell and basically at every time could tell us where, where are our molecules and where are they trafficking. And this is something which is um, possible because they are extremely stable and do not photobleach. And you can differentiate them very nicely from other um, uh, molecules. This also works in, um, in an in vivo model. So we used an um, tumor model. So Mr. Zimmert basically, he conducted these experiments where he grafted a tumor on a chicken embryo. The tumor is shown here. And then basically we um, added our drug formulation. And you can see that the tumor basically shrinks tremendously and also less proliferating cells were seen after this incubation. And that was very promising for us that basically this delivery aspect worked quite well, that we could show the substantial effect um, preliminary tumor model. For the la last two minutes that I still have, I would like to show you now how we can connect this drug delivery aspect with also with imaging opportunities. So if you add a drug molecule, you would like to basically uh, receive the information whether there is a possibility for a therapeutic effect or whether there are also people that are not responding and uh, limited toxicity. So you would like to learn much more about your delivery system. And therefore, it is extremely attractive 
to, for example, use a technology which is um, the magnetic resonance imaging, which has a very good spatial resolution, but it's not very sensitive. And it's a non-invasive technique. And it would be beautiful if we could see our nano diamonds with this MRI technique. And actually, this is something which becomes possible in the future. I would just like to jump over. So nano diamonds offer the opportunity to polarize, hyperpolarize spins in their lattice. Again, this is quantum physics, yeah? But maybe I can just highlight that if you shine laser light, like my green laser pointer, to this defect center, and if there is a microwave close by, then you polarize C13 atoms in the, in the crystal lattice, and this polarization can be transferred to the surrounding, and that gives you a hyperpolarized sample. And basically, that is something which allows you to, to, um, to expect to get a really good signal in an MRI machine. And this is something where we receive at the moment quite a bit of funding, and it's my last scientific slide because that really has a lot of potential so that you have, for example, MRI with a, with a certain sensitivity, and then this hyperpolarization basically increases the sensitivity, and if you have a hyperpolarization in a particle with many, many spins, then you can imagine that you can really uh, uh, have an enhanced MRI signal just by shining light on the nanodiamond at room temperature. And that would offer, basically, to bridge the entire spectrum from sensing, from color, even to hyperpolarization and MRI. And it would allow us hopefully, to investigate in the future if we inject a nanodiamond with a hyperpolarization, where do they traffic, where do they circulate, accumulate, then basically to have the emission so that the surgeon might be able to cut out tissue, and then uh, at the end, the single spin detection that I started with to give us more information even in a biological, in a cellular context. And that is something I think there are there are no other materials at the moment that allow that at room temperature. So, and that is our great vision where we would like to head for. I've, I gave you some ideas in that section, some here and here. But the important point is how can we bring everything together and how can we exploit all these features within one particle system? With that, I would like to finish. This is my group in Mainz. I would like to thank them. So, my group is all the core facilities we have from MPIP. And uh, last but not least, my collaboration partners, and in particular, Fyodor Jeletsko and Martin Plenio. And I would like to thank you very much for your kind attention. I'm happy to take your questions. You've been listening to a podcast from the IFE. To stay up to date with our podcasts, please subscribe to our channel. You can also visit us on the web at qut.edu.au forward slash IFE. And we're also on Twitter at IFE underscore QUT and also on Instagram at IFE.QUT. We really hope you enjoyed this IFE podcast. <laughs>